0: podcast you're about to hear is true the names have not been changed to protect the innocent the guilty or anyone else if you're interested in the same type of discussion related to organized crime that you hear in the traditional media stop listening now if you're interested in thinking differently or learning something turn up the volume on your computer smartphone or mobile device this is the racket report Here's Frank Morono. Welcome to The Racket Report, the podcast that explores what has been going on in the world of organized crime, what has happened in the world of organized crime. And oftentimes we focus on the world of the mafia, La Cosa Nostra, the mob. Well, there's a fellow who has been getting a great deal of attention posthumously who was not Italian, not a part of the mafia, but was as big of a gangster as any mafioso in the entire country. That is James Whitey. Now, the reason that he's getting a lot of attention four years after he was murdered is because finally there have been people charged with his murder. And even as we have finally gotten a little bit of closure about his murder, there seems to be a whole lot of questions, not only about his death in his 80s, being murdered in prison, but about his life. And by far, uh, the greatest authority I know on the subject of Whitey Bulger is Michelle McPhee. She is a best-selling author, an Emmy-nominated investigative journalist, an award-winning columnist, and someone that was a gifted radio talk show hostess. On the one hand, I'm uh, very sorry that she's not on the radio anymore because I really enjoyed listening to her. But on the other hand, uh, she was so much better than the rest of us that still do this for a living. Who really needs the competition? It is great to be joined by the the one and only Michelle McPhee. Hello, Michelle
1: come on you are the best of the best miliardi, as they say in Brooklyn <laughs> there's no way I can hold a candle to you uh, it's so nice to hear your voice and it, I miss New York so much
0: uh, well we miss you we can't wait to have you uh, back back on the east coast and back, uh, back in studio but I know you're doing some exciting things now which uh, if time permits I'll ask you about but for people that uh, may have heard the name Whitey Bulger but may not be up on exactly who he was and the uh, details of his criminal career, who was Whitey Bulger and what was his role with the Winter Hill Gang? What did they do that made them so notorious?
1: So Whitey Bulger was a notorious kind of hoodlum. You know, he wasn't in the La Costa Nostra. He wasn't like famous, like the gangsters that we know the bold face names. What he was was a pretty good hood. And he made a name for himself because he kind of took over what is known as the Irish Mafia here, the Winter Hill Gang in Somerville. And during the war between different factions of this Winter Hill Gang, Whitey Bulger kind of came out on top. But we now know, Frank, that there might have been a reason that Whitey Bulger seemed to win all the wars, and that's because he's been an FBI informant for decades. This is a guy who, when he was in Alcatraz, He has been involved in federal programs ever since MKUltra, and Jolly West was running around giving everybody LSD as part of a giant CIA test.
0: Now, that's pretty extraordinary. Now, um, when we talk about Whitey Bulger and his criminal career, when was he sort of at his apex? When was he running things in New England and uh, sort of at the top of the heap of the, the Irish mafia?
1: He was kind of at the top of the heap by the time he was in his 20s. Now, remember, he had a lot of different juice. If If it wasn't his friends in the FBI, his brother, Billy Bulger, was the Senate president for a time. He was a huge politician. Billy Bulger was a guy who could make deals under the Golden Dome, as we call the Massachusetts State House. You know, he had a lot of political juice and he had a lot of friends. And, you know, you have the most powerful politician in Boston, couple it with the most powerful wise guy, then you have a pretty dynamic duo. Uh, and I think you know, Frank. I think you might agree with me. I think Billy gets left out of this conversation quite a bit. Oh, uh, but there is no bigger gangster than the politician.
0: Oh no, no. <laughs> well, that, that's for sure. Uh, we're going to uh, come back to uh, Billy Bulger in uh, just a minute. So, is it safe to say that his sort of the the uh, he- the apex of his criminal reign, Whitey Bulger, was in the seventies, the eighties?
1: All the seventies, the eighties. You know, by the time. I started becoming a, a crime reporter in Boston in the 90s. He was this sort of legendary. And all of the legendary stories about Whitey were unfortunately false. Like Whitey keeps the drugs out of Southie when it, it turns out that Whitey Bulger was flooding South Boston with drugs. Mm. You know, all of the legends that attach themselves these narratives that are repeated so often, they almost become true. And I think that was the case of Whitey Bulger. He was feared... He was revered in the Irish circles of selfie. But, you know, little did so many people know is that, you know, this machismo that he walked around with was really bolstered by his partnership with the FBI in Boston. Do we know when
0: um, that partnership with the FBI began?
1: Well, I think if you look through the court records, you can find, you know, his top echelon informant number began pretty much in the late 70s initially. And when you think about the time he did an Alcatraz in the 70s, you know, he obviously had a relationship with the CIA. So I think, you know, this is a guy who's been running around in federal circles for years, decades. But when we know for sure he made this deadly alliance with, uh, you know, somebody who grew up with, John Connolly, in the South Boston Project, that was in the 1980s. And it didn't become public until, of course, the 1990s. But I think that people will argue it goes back all the way to the 70s at the height of his mob power.
0: You you alluded to the uh, MKUltra program and Whitey Bulger's involvement with it. Now, um, Whitey was at a federal prison in Atlanta serving a term for armed robbery and uh, truck hijacking. And it's believed that it was there that he first became drugged as part of this MKUltra program from the CIA now for years the CIA didn't even really acknowledge the existence of MKUltra it was something that was sort of considered a conspiracy theory but this was a a program of essentially human experimentation where they would give subjects drugs including LSD. Explain to folks that might not be up on this, Michelle, why would the CIA have an interest in giving prisoners LSD? What do they accomplish by something like that?
1: Well, I think there are, you know, there are different trains of thought on this, but it definitely was all about the military and creating the perfect soldier. And we now know the MKUltra program has been linked to Whitey Bulger. It's been linked to Charles Manson. It's been linked to even John Hinckley if you read some of the mm-hmm. new unclassified mm-hmm. documentation. So look, you know, uh, Billy Bulger, who is suing the federal Bureau of prisons, which I know we haven't gotten into his death yet, but the federal Bureau of prisons is getting sued. And one of the arguments that Billy Bulger is making is that his brother became a psycho primarily because of his affiliation in his program and then his partnership with the Fed. Now, I think his victims, the 19 people he murdered, would have a bone stick with that analogy. I think there is some truth in the middle, because that's where you and I occupy is the sure, middle. Absolutely. There's nuance to this, right? Like, like was Whitey Bulger a horrendous human being and a rat? Absolutely. Are there questions to be raised about how this guy, who is a protected witness, is wheeled into a cell where three of his enemies from Boston just happened to be waiting? I think that that's the bigger part of this new indictment. We all knew that these three guys committed this homicide more than three years ago. And as you know, I wrote about it for L.A. Magazine. Like, it doesn't seem like anyone's in a hurry to find out. But there are some questions to be answered. Like, how the hell did this happen? How did a guy... I mean, it's absurd, Frank. You and I are friends. You and I both know that the Federal Bureau of Prisons employs committees sure. to say, okay, Murano and McPhee, they know each other. We're going to make sure these two don't get in the same facility for obvious reasons. because so There could be violence. We could take it over. There could be conspiracies." We're expected to believe that Cadillac Frank Salemi, who was Whitey's longtime partner and then arch-nemesis, a guy that Whitey helped put away, we're expected to believe that Cadillac Frank Lemmy's co-defendant, then we have the Code of Silence kid from Charlestown, and then we have a guy who hates rats connected to the Genovese crime family in Springfield, Massachusetts. These three guys just happen to be waiting for Whitey and, and have access to this protected prisoner within 45 minutes of his arrival. Does that ring true to you at all? Oh,
0: no. I mean, it, it strikes me as, as completely absurd, and I'm eager to see where this... Uh, this. Uh, but there's this... no
1: investigation. Like, where is it? It's no, three... well, uh, it's... Uh, Give me a break. This no... is all on video, and it took three years to arrest these guys.
0: Uh, no, I'm uh, eager to see where that uh, that Billy Bulger lawsuit goes, if anywhere. Now, speaking of Billy Bulger, this is to me one of the many fascinating aspects about Whitey Bulger's life. As you mentioned, uh, Whitey Bulger responsible for at, at least 11 murders, probably a lot more, uh, running one of the biggest cli- c- criminal gangs in New England. And here you have his brother that is the most powerful Democratic politician in Massachusetts. Massachusetts, not named Kennedy, for years that presiding over the state senate, and then goes and becomes the uh, president of the of a major university in Massachusetts. Now, every family has,
1: Which, which, by the way, is the biggest mob move in the world because he's double dipping. Right, he gets his pension as a senator, and he gets his pension as a mass state, you know, hack, as we say. As, here's a guy who was already collecting two hundred grand a year in his pension from being a senator, and now he gets a new state job, which is a salary. But then his salary becomes a different pension. I'm sure Billy Bulger is collecting about at least five to six hundred thousand dollars a year as a taxpayer right now.
0: Wow, I mean, so uh- is
1: that not gangster, A guy in his eighties. Still
0: collecting like half a mill from the taxpayer. Come on. Oh, so his 18-year tenure as the president of the Massachusetts State Senate is the longest in history. Then, as you mentioned, he becomes president of the University of Massachusetts. Every family, certainly mine, yours, I'm sure every family has a, a couple of, of black sheep. Do we know if at the time that uh, Whitey Bulger was presiding over his criminal empire and Billy Bulger was presiding over his political empire? Do we know if those two were in touch? Were they friendly? Were they estranged? What what do we know about the relationship of the Bulger brothers?
1: Well, I mean, look it. This is this is obviously a subject of public information. If you look at the congressional report, everything secret degenerates. And as we both know, it seems like we don't learn from our history. But years ago, you had Billy Bulger forced to testify in front of Congress about exactly When and where he talked to his brother after he fled Boston, tipped off to a pending indictment by some dirty FBI agents. Now, here's one thing I'll point out, Frank. You know, we have two guys that were running Whitey Bulger. We have Vino Connolly. I'm I'm sorry, Vino Morris, John Morris. And they called him Vino because Whitey used to gift him cases of wine. Right, because he's a fancy guy, John Morris, and he likes expensive wine. So they started to nickname him Vino. Well, is it interesting to you that after Whitey fled Boston, kicked off to a pending indictment, where did he end up? Well, he is the head of the public corruption squad <laughs> in Los Angeles. Are you kidding me? Here's a guy who was already outed by the Boston Globe as being corrupt. He's in charge of the public corruption squad. And he's sent to L.A., which just happens to be 1.2 miles away from the hideout in Santa Monica, where, trust me, as somebody who lives in L.A. now, please, for the love of God, somebody find me an apartment in Santa Monica, three blocks from the beach for 700 bucks a month. (laughs) So there's always been stories that Whitey was in a safe house this entire time and Morris was still running him.
0: That is wild. Now, that to me is the most interesting. I, mean, I keep saying it. this is the most well, interesting aspect of Whitey Bulger's career, but almost everything is the most interesting aspect. The MKUltra. Because
1: it just feels like there's so many different ways that the government was able to utilize it, right? Right, right. Even in L.A., here's a guy who's going to... I mean, look, all I know is when he was convicted, I specifically raised the question... You remember that they found, you know, 30 or so weapons in a secret hide in the Santa Monica hideout, three blocks from the beach. Now, Whitey is so infirm, I hardly think that this doddering old man is building secret clandestine hides, so sophisticated that the feds had to rip out the walls to find them. And behind those walls are brand new guns. So when Whitey is convicted, and I was at his trial every single day, I remember asking the U.S. attorney, clearly the ATF has run those guns. Where did they come from? And they all, I mean, look, the looks on everybody's face tells you the story. This is a question they do not want to answer. To this day, you cannot get the brass catcher on those guns. And it raises a real question about whether or not Whitey was still working for the feds and that debacle, Fast and Furious. Wow. Which... If you think about it, Frank, you know, Eric Holder is still the only sitting attorney general ever held in contempt of Congress because they refused to give up any intel on that program or who the people were that walked those guns that the ATF wanted to track into Mexico, who walked them over the border. I mean, I don't have the answer to that question, but I do know that Whitey went to Mexico quite often because we have those records. We know that Whitey had these brand-new guns that no one will give the tracking to. And I just think there's a lot of unanswered questions about how he ends up here in L.A. And at the same time, John Morris, one of his two dirty handlers, gets promoted to head a public corruption office that just happens to be, you know, very close to the Santa Monica building where Whitey was finally located after more than a
0: decade on the land. Uh, so w- one of the many interesting aspects of Whitey Bulger's life, uh, you have the MK Ultra aspect, which is fascinating. You have the fact that his brother was such a powerful politician. That's fascinating. But to me, it just takes the cake that uh, he was in bed with the federal government while he was such a notorious criminal and murderer. W- um, w- you know, one of the things and that... And
1: was he still in bed with the government while he was hiding out? Mm, uh, That's the big question that
0: hasn't been answered. So you John Morris, the other agent uh, that's frequently mentioned in connection with Whitey Bulger and went to prison as a result of his affiliation with Whitey Bulger was was John Connolly. Now, um, there are a lot of notorious people that have worked as FBI informants and cooperating witnesses. And the FBI is seemingly always able to find some justification for why they should make a deal with the devil, no matter how bad that person is. They always make a pretty good case. Well, they helped us get this person. They helped us shut down this crime ring or that organized crime ring. Um, What do we know about what the FBI and the federal government actually got from Whitey Bulger as an informant? Was he a valuable informant?
1: Well, they got headlines for the office, right? So the FBI uh, field office in Boston got headlines about Jerry Angulo, who was the Italian boss of the Boston crime families. And, you know, John Connolly famously stalked into a restaurant in Boston's North End. And as Jerry Angelo was being let out, he remarked to the crowd in the restaurant, I'll be back before my pork chops get cold. And next to him is a grinning John Connolly. So, you know, what the FBI got out of it, aside from wine and money, is headlines. And notoriety and promotions, and I think that we've seen this play out over and over and over again. Most recently today, when you look at the Michigan kidnapping plot of the governor, and you see that there were more FBI agents and informants in that case than there were targets, which I think needs to be looked at. And again, that's one of the questions that were, are being raised, at least in the Boston area. Look. Whitey e. Bulger was talking about the top echelon informant program at a time that Bob Mueller was conducting the Trump investigation, and I think this is a part of the history that people forget. Bob Mueller was instrumental in signing Whitey e. Bulger up as an informant in the first place mm. when he worked in the worked in the racket squad in the Boston U.S. Attorney's office.
0: Mm. Uh, that. Is just extraordinary. Now, you alluded to the fact that um, uh, Morris uh, m- probably helped Whitey evade arrest initially. Why did the Department of Justice make the decision to arrest Whitey if they had protected him for so many years? Uh, Why did they make the determination that his use as his value as an informant was no longer valuable enough to keep them from arresting him? When did things when did things switch in the eyes of the DOJ?
1: Well, because they had someone talking about the fact that Whitey and his partner, who was also an FBI informant for decades, Steve the rifleman Flemy I mean it, it it takes a new level of crime. Steve Flemy which is now part of the public record, admits to sleeping with his stepdaughter, his longtime girlfriend's daughter. And when that stepdaughter got mouthy, Steve Flemy testified to this in Whitey's trial. He and Whitey killed her, ripped out her teeth, made sure she couldn't be identified and worse, told her family that they sent her on vacation in Mexico and they have no idea what happened to her. Meanwhile, they know that they buried her in Dorchester, Massachusetts, in the Whitey Bulger graveyard. And I think even the FBI couldn't come to grips with trying to justify a homicide like that. Like, you know, the, the the bodies were mounting. And instead of just being collateral damage, fellow wise guys, people who had a coming, we're talking about young women. We're talking about, you know, the son of a Boston police officer who was just giving a buddy a ride home. The bodies that Whitey was wiping out were becoming increasingly high profile. And it was only a matter of time before the feds were going to get caught up in this idea that they gave this evil person a path to commit murder.
0: Mm. Absolutely uh, incredible. You alluded to at least one big mafia figure being arrested, at at least as a result of some of the information that Whitey provided to the FBI. In general, um, would you characterize Whitey Bulger's relationship with with La Cosa Nostra in New England as adversarial, or was there occasionally times where it was cooperative and collaborative?
1: I mean, look, you know, this is when the mafia, and we all know that Paul Castellano is now correct, this is when the mafia started to slowly eat itself from within with drugs. You know, I, I think, I don't know if it's a legend more or if it's true that Paul Castellano said that drugs were going to be the downfall of the mafia, but whether he really said it or he didn't, the term is correct. Drugs have absolutely decimated what you and I grew up with as a mafia in Boston and New York. And I think that what the, the partnership that came between the Italians and the Irish were drugs. You know, of course, this comes at a time where Whitey and his henchmen, guys like Pat Nee and Kevin Weeks, they were revered because of the help that they were giving and the money they were giving to the IRA. And this was during the Troubles. So this is at a time where, you know, the IRA was at its height of uh, violence and, you know, fighting back against, you know, they were being persecuted and they fought back. And a lot of the money that came for that fight was originating in Boston. So Whitey was kind of playing all these different roles where he was helping the IRA, he was moving drugs through selfie and he had these buddies that they called, you know, in town, which would be the Italians, and that would be Jerry and Julio. And, and Dulo was kind of a, of a beloved figure. Little did he know that his friend Whitey Bulger was, you know, ratting him out the whole time. And then, and Frank, you know, not to mention the fact that the FBI was undermining their partners and local law enforcement. Guys like Bobby Long, there was a state trooper in Massachusetts that took his own life because he was accused of tipping Whitey every time they had were close to moving in on Whitey. It seemed like the case was somehow upended, and there were people that were accused of chipping off Whitey that had nothing to do with it, including a trooper that took his own life.
0: Mm. Wow. So uh, think
1: about the damage. It went on and on and on. It wasn't just about the people that he killed. It was about the careers that were ruined. It was about the time that was wasted. Or it was about the tax dollars that was squandered, chasing a guy that the feds were protecting the entire time. Years and years and years of undercover cases that were just thwarted because the FBI was working with them secretly the entire time.
0: Obviously, every law enforcement agency has a few bad apples that might be corrupted or might do things that are unethical. the The decision to help Whitey evade capture, uh, you mentioned Connolly and Morris. Do we know if the the fact that Whitey was tipped off uh, in order to evade arrest was that an organizational decision on the part of the FBI as a whole, or was that one or two agents? saying to Whitey, Psst, you might want to be aware that this is what's going down?
1: Well, I mean, the narrative is that, you know, Connolly was the guy who tipped him with Morris' help. But you have to ask yourself a question. There's, you know, you, you think about the, the bags of money. You don't have two rank-and-file agents who have access to that kind of money that was given to Whitey and his henchmen. Like, that's the big question, Frank, and it's a question I've always had, is how high did this go up? And did they let Whitey go before he started talking about exactly who his real sources were? And when you think about the the, the people in government, you know, in high-ranking offices that have been around this case since the very beginning, I, I mean, it raises an eyebrow. I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but I definitely think we have to take a look at history. And history shows that, yeah. John Connolly was buddies and grew up with Whitey and he definitely tipped him off. And John Morris somehow ends up in the same city as Whitey after he goes on the lam. But how high up did this go?
0: Yeah, uh, that's the question well, nobody seems to have uh, a good answer for. So he's on the Well, uh, it
1: certainly raises the question of why he
0: got whacked in jail, doesn't it? Uh, no, uh, that is the the million-dollar question as far as I'm concerned. So he's on the lam uh, for for several years. He's captured in 2011. It seemed like every few months, particularly after Osama bin Laden was killed and Bulger was elevated to being number one on the FBI's most wanted most wanted list, there was always like an Elvis sighting. You'd see in the newspapers, Whitey spotted in Italy. Whitey spotted in Australia, and they, well, would- and they
1: were, He was always spotted in beautiful places, right? He wasn't spotted in Newark. He was <laughs> spotted in like Portofino. Give me a break. And now you have the whole FBI this team like running to Portofino. They weren't running to like Louisiana. <laughs>
0: Right. I didn't see any in Staten Island, that's for sure. Uh, that's so, a
1: thing. It's like not like anybody saw him at the dump. So,
0: <laughs> so between between 1994, when he became a fugitive, and 2011, when he was arrested, do we know if he was actually vi- uh, visiting these uh, luxurious locations, or did he pretty he much was, stay he, in... He was
1: in... No, we know. We. He was in Staten Island the whole time. And Frank, you know, this is something I could never... Con- Staten Island. And I'm sorry, <laughs> He was in Santa Monica the whole time, you know, it's the same. But Santa Monica is really a fascinating place because here's Whitey. And when I first, you know, I, I was part of this documentary team called America Declassified. And when, when Whitey first got locked up, I got calls from sources. And my sources were like, you know, that, that whole building, the Princess Eugenia, which, by the way, is gone now, that whole building... Has uh, interesting names on the buzzwords. And if you run the names, they all kind of correspond with famous cases like Rosenberg. And you know that Bulger was living under an assumed identity that he took from a homeless guy that he met at the Palisades. Um, there's like a greenway right near the beach in Santa Monica. And Whitey befriended a homeless guy and became that homeless guy, Charles Gasco. But it's still a huge question because in this documentary, you know, we all know about this woman from Iceland who allegedly collected the reward and she was an actress. And, you know, after how many years of waiting being on the lam, 14 years, they decided, hey, by the way, he's with his gamada, whose gamada is named um, Catherine Gregg. And she might have gotten a boob job. And then whew, lo and behold, we find them in Santa Monica. And I think that some of my sources had questions about whether or not they really found Whitey or if somebody was just sick and tired of taking care of him like Catherine Gregg.
0: <laughs> so you and think they, there's a possibility that Catherine Gregg might have been the one that uh, that blew the whistle on Whitey's whereabouts when he was a fugitive?
1: Well, all I can tell you is that no one can find this woman from Iceland. Hmm. And when we pulled her sad card, because remember, she was the actress who had done some commercials is what the Fed story was. And we pulled her a SAG card for this documentary and I called the number and the number was like, you have reached the San Francisco Federal Bureau of Investigation. It was like the main number to the San Francisco FBI is the number she listed on her actress SAG card.
0: Hmm. Uh, that is wild. Uh, that's see. That's why we talk with Michelle McPhee, and that's why she's an Emmy nominated. Well, look
1: again. This is like all stuff that you know. Just as these are these are strings that people are pulling. Nothing has been verified yet. Um, all I know is that no one has ever been able to interview this woman, other than a very good reporter at the Boston Globe, Shelley Murphy, who has a very good relationship with the FBI. And it's just interesting that no one can seem to find her in a small country like
0: Iceland. Uh, going back to the weapons aspect of things, uh, as you mentioned, there was this, uh, this arsenal of pristine weapons that was found with Whitey when he was captured. Do we have any idea if these weapons were, were used for the 14 years, that, uh, or 14 years or so that Whitey was a, a fugitive and what Whitey's plan was to do with these weapons?
1: Nope. And I think that that was why I was asking the question, like, what was he doing mm. with all these guns? It's not like he le- fled Southie with a big duffel bag full of guns. Why did he have these weapons? What was he gonna do with these weapons? Where did these weapons come from? These remain unanswered questions.
0: And when he was finally captured, while we may not know the truth about the tip or tips that led to his his being captured, it was not as if he went out in some sort of a Bonnie and Clyde or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid blaze of glory. He, he basically acquiesced to the arresting agents without much drama, right?
1: Yeah, I think he said to one of them famously... What took you so long? And now remember, we have to give a lot of credit to the FBI agents and the U.S. Marshals who found him. They are completely unaware of this backstory in Boston. They don't know about the deals that were made or the deals that weren't made. These are people who are looking for a bad guy and they found him. And they came up with a pretty elaborate ruse to get him to come out of his house smartly because, as we now know, it was filled with weapons and $800,000 in cash.
0: What was the ruse, Michelle? How did they get him to come out of his house?
1: They, you know, they told him that something was wrong in the garage. And Frank, I'm embarrassed to say, I don't remember. Did they say like oh, it's okay. it's been his a, car a had been broke? Yeah, they, you know, they said his car has been broken into, or or a storage facility had been tampered with. But they got him to come to the garage, and that's pretty common in LA, where if you live in one of those buildings. You know, like uh, a Hollywood-style building, you have a separate storage area where you park your car because there's no parking. And I think that's how they got him out. They, they told him there was something wrong with his vehicle or something wrong with his boat or something wrong with what was in the garage. And he came downstairs and, boom, with that Gilligan bucket hat, now famous, and they grabbed him.
0: Hmm. Now, that and, is... And
1: even... I heard from sources that even on the plane ride back, when he was on the plane back to Boston to face these charges, he stuck up at John Connolly and said the guy got railroaded. Now, I'm not defending John Connolly. You know, obviously he tarnished his badge. But do I think John Connolly is the only FBI agent in the history of the Bureau that had a bad source, that had a top echelon informant who went wrong? Absolutely not. But I know he's the only one who went to jail.
0: Um, as Since you were at the, the trial, um, I, I expected a bit more drama from the Bulger trial, a little bit more uh, from the defense in terms of what Whitey was actually doing with the federal government or something. We heard very little of that. What, what exactly was Whitey's defense at trial?
1: Well, Whitey's defense, and Jay Cardi's a great lawyer, but Whitey's defense so was, look, I have permission for all of this. I was told by the powers that be, and those powers that be, obviously, will we went back to Mueller and, and the original bosses in the racket squad in the U.S. Attorney's Office. I was told that I could do anything if I could bring them the heads of Anjulo and other big-time monsters, and that's what I did. So all of my activity, I wasn't exactly... I mean, look, I think that where his defense fell apart is that he really was determined to try to portray himself as somebody who was not a rat.
0: He really what, why? Just to maintain to his, his street cred, even if that street meant Fred. his, he's his back liberty? in
1: Boston now, it's embarrassing. Mm. Well, he had no liberty. I mean, he's an old man wearing a diaper by the time he got back to Boston. He had a pretty good life. I'll tell you what. Frank, if I could live in the Princess Eugenia for 700 bucks a month, which is about three miles from where I am right now, I'd be psyched. There's and- a guy who was living in an apartment that was literally three blocks from the beach in one of the hottest areas of L.A., and you're expecting us to believe that he just happened to fall into this $700 a month apartment? Come on.
0: Mm. Uh, and that's where you suspect that maybe the maybe he had a helping hand from uh, the FBI. I think FBI. he was
1: working for the feds this entire time. That is that wild. That's a suspicion. But that- I think he was working for the feds the entire time, and he was getting to be a pain in the ass, and Catherine was sick of him, and he was sick, and he wanted to come in.
0: Oh, so you think this was not even a, a Catherine taking this upon herself thing. This was Whitey being ready to uh, stop stop playing this game.
1: I think it was a little, I mean, my suspicion is it was a little bit of both. And I think that he saw himself, you know, telling the real story of the top echelon informant program. And if you look at the timeline, we all know that Congressman Stephen Lynch, and this is a matter of public record, he filed legislation to have a federal informant accountability act. Because Stevie Lynch has been very outspoken about some of these deals with the devil that have been made by the Boston FBI office in particular, because he's a Boston congressman. And the story that I've heard is that Whitey was talking to Stevie Lynch, and suddenly he's being transferred to Hazleton. And, you know, he's, he's soon the victim of a homicide with a lock in a sock. And think about, friend how long it takes have somebody try to sever your tongue with a serrated spoon and gouge out your eyes Mm -hmm. without anyone intervening in a federal prison. And the words of John Gotti Jr., who you know I know, John Gotti Jr. called that utter bullshit. It's impossible. It's impossible in a federal facility for a homicide that gruesome that involves that kind of mutilation to take place under the watchful eye of so many different employees. Especially when you consider that the homicide we now know for a fact was carried out by three people that never should have been in the same facility, never mind the same block, to begin with. Mm. Mm. Based on the BOP's own rules But if he
0: was If Whitey was going to kind of blow the lid Off the top echelon informant program And it sounds like uh, Because of what Congressman Lynch was doing There would have been no better time for him to do so Why would he have not testified At that trial And on direct examination Explained exactly what his role was And what was going on With the top echelon informant program
1: Because a lot of that stuff was, if you look at Jay Carney's motion, a lot of it was ruled inadmissible. Because Jay Carney's entire defense was built on that argument, and, you know, the federal judge in that case, who did a great job... Denise Casper, but she ruled a lot of it inadmissible to the crimes at hand and understandably, because in the end, Whitey Bulger is still a psychopathic lowlife who murdered 19 innocent people. He was found guilty, according to a Massachusetts jury, of killing 11 of those people. And this was a trial about getting justice for the families who sat in that courtroom, knowing that Whitey murdered their loved ones and had helped doing it from the people that were supposed to be protecting them. So it really would have complicated that trial to say, well, he had a past from our own government to harm your family, right. to rip your, your father out of your life. I think that Denise Casper, you know, made the correct ruling and saying, look, this is inadmissible. This is a trial about these homicides. This is not a trial about the top echelon informant right. program.
0: Right. So maybe they were limited so, um, in what they could actually uh, what they could actually say. Um, before we get to... Which quite, I
1: think Jay Carney was very frustrated by. Oh,
0: I can imagine. I can imagine. Before we get to the situation about Whitey's demise in prison, you've been a terrific screenwriter over the years for uh, a lot of terrific shows and films of critically acclaimed shows, shows that have gained a, a wide audience. There have been a lot of films and television programs over the years that have depicted Whitey Bulger, either Whitey himself or they change the name slightly and make him some somebody else. You have The Departed, you have Black Mass. Uh, there was a huge story arc on Ray Donovan in which there was a character that was kind of based on you as well. There was the show uh, The Brotherhood, which deals <laughs> is with...
1: is not that funny? Uh, I, that I, I think it was so great. I, I want to find that showrunner and I,
0: get
1: I, my life rights back.
0: <laughs> I, I thought it was terrific. There was the show The Brotherhood, which deals with the politician criminal aspect of uh, of things in, uh, in in New England. Of all the shows and or films that uh, that you've seen that depict a Whitey-esque character, what is either the most uh, accurate, or if we can't say the most accurate because there's so many details of this that we don't know, what's been the most entertaining?
1: I mean, I would say the town all day. The I town. love the town. And you know why I love the town? Because I just love the idea that, you know, the statey got his up in the end. Well, no, that was The Departed. I mean, I'm sorry, The Departed. Uh, I'm sorry, I meant The Departed. I also love the town, but that's a completely different scenario. Same
0: thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, no, no, no. The
1: Departed, yeah, because I think The Departed was accurate because it showed the tension between the locals and the feds. And I think that that gets overlooked a lot when you talk about the Whitey Bulger story is just how horrific... Even, you know, you know, we've talked many times about the Boston Marathon bombing case and the relationship between the FBI and the local law enforcement was absolutely affected in the aftermath of the Boston Marathon bombing because of the history of Whitey Bulger. You know, this is, you know, listen, Boston is run on sports, politics and revenge. And you think that the state's and the locals are not going to get revenge on the FBI every chance they can get?
0: Oh, no, that's for sure. And uh, you're right. That was an aspect of uh, of that film that was uh, that you don't see explored in a lot of other films. That's you for sure. You don't see
1: it explored. It's like the FBI always comes out on top, which, look it, you know I have, I'm writing a fantastic book right now about a, an amazing and possible feat the FBI task force pulled off in Boston with an MS-13 case. This is not an indictment against the FBI. Sure. But, the, but the issue I have always had is, look— If an NYPD police officer or a BPD police officer pulled half the shit that the FBI has done over and over and over again, they'd be in jail. And the only FBI agent that I know of that went to prison is John Collins.
0: Right. Right. Um, So let's talk about Whitey's demise as objectively as you can possibly answer the question. How does Whitey Bulger, a notorious criminal who, who you'd think would be very much on everybody's radar screen, both the inmate population and the Bureau of Prisons, but also someone who that we now know was a rat, how does he end up in general population at a prison in West Virginia?
1: I mean, that's a question that I feel like Congress should be asking the Federal Bureau of Prisons. So that's why this entire indictment and the announcement this week is falls flat. You know, my good friend, Emily Rooney, who's a longtime Boston reporter. And, you know, she is definitely, uh, I think, more aligned with, let's say, opposite sides of this argument. Right. But Emily and I were both talking This is nonsense, because the real issue is, look, nobody is crying that Whitey Bulger is dead. Nobody is crying that Jeffrey Epstein is dead. But if it can happen to them, it can happen to us, which is why it is the responsibility of journalists like you. It's the responsibility of the public to demand the answer. How did this happen? It's impossible. Your tax dollars pay for Committees in the Federal Bureau of Prisons to make sure that Boston people aren't put in the same facility. And yet, you have this scenario where a protected informant is wheeled into a room filled with his enemies. That feels very much like an assassination. And if we're going to level the death penalty of people, please, right. for the love of all that's holy, wheel the marathon bomber Jahar Zanayev into a room filled with Bostonians <laughs> and let him suffer the same fate. Because if this is how we're going to implement the death penalty, let's do it universally. Let, let Jahar get wheeled into general population and see how he fares. It has to be one or the other, Frank. And that's, that's the biggest It's a point of principle for me. I'm not sorry that Whitey's dead. A very close friend of mine lost his father to Whitey Bulger's violence. This isn't about Whitey. This is about we live in a society where we should not be allowing any of our citizens to be assassinated at the hands of the federal government. And there are real questions about what happened here that no one has asked. How is it possible that we have allowed this to take place Three years have gone by. This is a murder that essentially happened in a 7-Eleven with 500 cameras, and it took three years for them to arrest the perps. But how about the questions that remain about how this happened in the first place? How is it that Congress isn't dragging every member of the Federal Bureau of Prisons who had a, a role in making him go to this new facility, how are they not being asked these very questions?
0: Well, and, and that's what's so frustrating, for all the reasons you have pointed out. You know, here was someone in the person of Whitey Bulger, as terrible as, the, as he was, he had knowledge that no one had about the what the CIA was doing with the MKUltra program, which is something that historians and citizens still have a lot of questions about. He had knowledge of what the FBI was doing with the Top Echelon Informant Program, and quite possibly he had knowledge of what was going on at the uh, the top echelons of Massachusetts state politics. So here's someone I mean, who, who think, had the.
1: And think about the timing. It overlapped with the Mueller investigation into Russia.
0: Yeah, and, and the fact that, as you indicated, how does it take four years to charge someone with his murder? I mean, you'd think that uh, there's, uh, there's <laughs> that raises a lot more questions than it answers.
1: Well, and and look, at, I just think that we have to make sure that we as a society are not allowing the government to dictate when and how people die. And given, I know that I'm sure there's people who are like, wow, this is a lot of conspiracy. It's not conspiracy. It's historical knowledge. And there's a history here. And if you forget your past, we're doomed to repeat it. And that's the frustration, I think, that real journalists feel, which is how do we let these questions go unanswered? After- how do you not demand answers from how did this transfer happen? How were these three people in the same general population area to begin with? This, I'm, I mean, Frank, we're not exaggerating. Like, you know, Paul DiColio uh, was Cadillac Frank's co-defendant. No, and I mean... That, Cadillac Frank had just gone on trial. Like it just, it makes it literally be like, I pissed off. So was the FBI agent, and suddenly I'm put into a cell with that guy.
0: No, it's, it's ridiculous. I- it's incredible, and uh, you, you, uh, you the the Bureau of prisons might not have killed him, but they put him in exactly the right circumstances in which uh, in which he would be killed,
1: and that's why I don't. And they let it go on for long enough. If you recall, the details of his death are: he was beaten to death with a lock in a sock. Now he's an old man in a wheelchair. That would not take long. Where it becomes questionable is. They took a serrated spoon and gouged out his eyes and then attempted to sever his right. tongue. That is a, that is an action that takes a very long time. Think about the amount of people that are in this facility that their entire job to protect the prisoner, whether they deserve the protection or not, is irrelevant. But their entire jobs are to protect the prisoner. That had to take a very long time. Oh, no. This I- wasn't an impulse murder. This was... Planned and executed over, uh, I mean, I would have to say, you know, this was something that took at least five to 15 minutes,
0: no? Uh, you would certainly think so. And, and that's what leads me. Everything that you just cited it seems to be a pretty <laughs> compelling indictment of the Bureau of Prisons handling of, of Whitey Bulger's situation. How in the world then, when the Bulger family filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the, uh, the Bureau of Prisons and the government, how was that lawsuit dismissed? How does that happen?
1: I mean, it's really interesting, too, because, you know, Billy Bulger is pretty – look, I, I'm not a fan of Billy Bulger either, but if you read the lawsuit, he makes a lot of compelling arguments about MK MKUltra and what happened to his brother and and how the federal government got the hooks into him when he was a young hustler. And, okay, maybe, maybe not. But what's, what's not in dispute is that Whitey Bulger – spent his time in jail being strip searched and called a pedophile and kept in solitary confinement. So how is it suddenly this guy goes from being in a solitary confinement to being wheeled into a room full of his enemies? Like that's the part of this case that doesn't make sense. If I'm a protected witness, how do you look at whitey is a different scenario, but Frank, let's say you witness a murder and you do the right thing. And there's plenty of murders in New York right now. And you do the right thing and you stand up to the to the DAs that are letting people go after hundreds of arrests and you do the right thing. I mean, think of who's the guy that chased down the subway shooter, right? That guy does the right, right thing. Right. And you put that guy in with a room full of homeless people that were friends with that dude <laughs> right. and he ends up dead. Like what this is what I'm talking about. It's like if we allow it to happen to one person, it can happen oh, yeah. to any of us. Absolutely. And just like Epstein, and look at I'm not saying Epstein was murdered. I'm just saying there are questions. Is it, is it believable that the cameras just stopped working that night? Is it believable that James Comey's daughter becomes the lead prosecutor on the case involving the correction officers who almost went down for that?
0: It's uh, it's certainly right. wild. Um, we've been talking with Michelle McPhee. You can check out her website, michellemcphee.com. That's Michelle with one L. Uh, you can check out her most recent book, Operation Mean Streets, uh, if you're interested in MS-13, the world's most dangerous g- dangerous gang. And uh, I've really enjoyed her book, Mayhem, about the uh, Boston Marathon bombing and a lot of the unanswered questions that surround the Sarneev brothers. Hey, Michelle, if people are uh, curious what you're up to these days, what are you— what up to these days
1: well um we're very hopeful fingers crossed that mayhem is going to become a documentary which would be great because you know it's been a, 10 years of trying to tell the story and it's, it's uh it's a complicated one so that's happening uh we have a couple of pilots out there we're trying to sell a, a scripted series um, you know, I just had a meeting tonight, in fact, right before I'm talking to you, Frank. And, you know, there's just there's, there's so much, um, there's so many stories that you and I have covered that I think would make great television, and that's what I'm out here trying to do right well, now.
0: That's great. Uh, well, keep us posted. Michelle, I appreciate you being so generous with your time. I'll look forward to uh, the next time we can do this on the radio, and I'll look forward to seeing you the next time you're in New York.
1: Oh. Well, Frank, congrats on all of the new endeavors that you're in. You really are one of the best of the best, so oh. I just wish you nothing but the for good luck and blessings on this new venture.
0: Thank you very much, Michelle. Michelle McPhee, one of the best radio talk show hosts out there, one of the best screenwriters that's out there, one of the best investigative journalists that's out there. If there's a, any format that involves telling a story, there's nobody that does it better than uh, Michelle McPhee. Proud to call her a uh, friend and a colleague. Check out her website, michellemcphee.com. Well, this hour has flown by. If uh, somebody sent you this podcast, please do us a favor and subscribe. You can also uh, forward it to a friend and leave us a, a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And until the next time we meet in the world of cyberspace, I'll see you on the radio.